Thanks to the pandemic, we're entering a world that's much more online and it's a world that's much more automated and data-driven. Jim Gazzard's director of the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and has been very much at the forefront and the front line of having to respond educationally to the challenges thrown our way by COVID. He's with us now. Hello, Jim. Hi, Chris. Jim, we've seen in the news stories of universities which have got huge outbreaks of COVID among their students now. We hope that Cambridge University isn't going to join their ranks. But just before we get into the educational side of things, do you think it was the the right decision to get young people back into university, undergraduates going back with this going on? Would they not have been better off at home doing online lessons? I think it's it's a very finely balanced decision. You mentioned young people, and I think that that's key. These are people who are needing to get on with their life, needing to get on with their education. Um, and they're at relatively low risk. So returning to halls of residence, returning to small group teaching, I think is, is probably on balance the most sensible decision. But I'm interested in adult education. Of course, it's a little bit different perhaps for people who are in their 40s or 50s or 60s or um, students with health conditions. So we decided to uh, deliver all of our continuing education, certainly for undergraduate courses, fully online this year. But I think to answer your question, I I think it was a reasonable decision, but obviously it's going to have to be carefully managed now, particularly in halls of residence. And how are you managing that whole transition of trying to take what was well established? I mean, in the case of a university like Cambridge, you've got 800 years of of university tradition and trying to convert that very much into the 21st century into an online learning experience. How have you done that? A lot of it is about bringing adult students together, bringing them as peers and asking them really great questions and bringing their lives experiences into the classroom. So actually, um, Zoom and Teams have been quite a good platform for that. I mean, behind the scenes, we've been really having to paddle to to make sure that the technology is there. But um, I'm hoping the students haven't noticed too much difference. I mean, certainly the feedback we've had is that there have been real exchanges of information. I think there's been a sort of, I don't know, a, a connectedness, people seeing other people's homes, children, pets. It's been a very real form of higher education. So, um, you know, I, I think the benefits are clear. But yes, some, some of the technology demands have been uh, been quite exacting behind the scenes. When we started this programme, we were doing a bit of a sound check and, and Lee Berger, who's with us from Johannesburg at the University of the Vortesrand and, and Theo Bloom, who's with us from the British Medical Journal, we were comparing home studios and, and Lee's in his bedroom and sounds pretty good. And, and Theo's in her home office, uh, what formerly known as the dining room. So where are you today? I'm actually at the office at Maddingley Hall. As uh, as many people will know, Maddingley has stayed open. Uh, we had been housing over the peak of the, the first uh, spike of the pandemic, NHS professionals. So we, we tried to keep this, this venue open. But yes, I, our students have been around the world. Uh, we've seen them at work and we've seen them in dining rooms and kitchens and gardens. So it's been fantastic. How has, though... Uh, the kind of response to learning worked out because some people have been saying to me that they go home at the end of the day and they're a bit zoomed out square-eyed from staring at screens all day do you find that actually people are quite positive and and what's been the 
experience of other institutions? Because presumably someone like you is, is looking across the whole teaching space and seeing what seems to be working in some places, what's working in other places to, to work out what might work for you. I mean, from the student perspective, we're hearing different things. Exactly that, that, you know, if they've been on Teams all day or Zoom, then it is quite difficult. So we're trying to break up the learning into smaller chunks uh, and to engage in different ways. What we are hearing from students is, particularly because of the, the global recession that goes along with the pandemic, is that there's, there's a real necessity about learning, whether that's about an enforced career change, uh, whether it's actually a concern about whether skills and knowledge are contemporary. So we've seen um, a real growth in enrolments. I mean, we're, we're over 50% up year on year. And I think this is, this is being mirrored uh, globally. We're talking particularly to North American and Australian counterparts, and they're seeing that growth too. I think sometimes it's for positive reasons, because people have used lockdown to really think about what they want to do with their futures. But as mentioned, it's also for some of these more challenging reasons. Just in terms of the, the technology and what our counterparts are doing globally, I think one reflection that, that I would want to talk about is the difference between what we're calling emergency remote teaching. And that's really what we've described using Zoom and Teams and other platforms. That yes, it does engage with students and learners and teachers together. But more considered online teaching, I think, is going to be the future where we're using different modalities, different forms of learning, whether that's flipping the classroom. So actually, we do the lectures via recorded piece. And actually, we have a more discursive, engaged conversation following that when we're all together in the virtual classroom or many other modalities besides one other thing that everyone is getting quite concerned about, of course, is assessment and examinations and how we do that in a way that's fair and clear um, with learners, but also where we can validate um, that that student is actually has taken the assignment or the exam. Uh, and that's something that all higher education institutions are grappling with at the minute. But technology is going to help us. Online proctored examinations, for example, I think now are possible um, and, and very much workable. So what I find particularly with adult students is working collectively as peers together to find solutions uh, to their learning needs. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Lee, what's been the experience uh, at uh, Vitz in Joburg? So we've we've had a very different experience, you might imagine, because um, our student body is different. We also have different technology challenges and bandwidth challenges. I mean, I, I think everyone has kind of felt like we've been in a moment of everyone being in a virtual seance every time. You know, are you there? Are you there? If you are, say something um, it, to start these things. But but as we've got into it, the teaching's been very good. But we have in the developing world a different challenge that that. Our students uh, can't afford the bandwidth in the way that the developed world can. You know, Wi-Fi, Internet is not as freely available. So all of our teaching tends to be um, recorded in advance, and we limit the, the interaction. And I think that's a really sad thing, The you know, because that's something we've got to capture and correct as soon as possible. I think, like many of you, I miss that that one-on-one -on -one interaction. It's that it's the things that happen during the course of a lecture as you follow the students and they challenge you that is the the point of, of higher education. 
the students have been very adaptable to this here in, in South Africa. You know, that generation was techno-savvy to begin with. Thank goodness this happened in the age of smartphones. I'm not sure what we would have uh, done uh, without that, but uh, it's it's been both a positive experience. We, we catch up very quick. Uh, we're experimenting in the field. You know, my teams are now all online. We have even down to preparators and technicians that are in isolation working. We have five, six cameras around them in virtual studios. So uh, we're all adapting. Uh, it happened at a very fortunate technological moment where we could find solutions to it. And I, I, am, I am excited about the way it often drives discovery and change. You were quite early to this sort of party, though, because when you started making the stupendous discoveries that you have in South Africa, rather than squirrel these findings away in a lab and and work on them in isolation for the rest of your career, you actually said, no, I'm going to scan them and I'm going to put all this data on the Internet so people would download and 3D print their own homeowner leddy or Australopithecus sediba. And people are. Uh, um, And, you know... It's interesting that you were there well ahead of people doing this. Are you are you psychic? Did you have a premonition? <laughs> no, but I but you know it was it was also that was just trying to remove some of the the fighting in this field of paleoanthropology by showing the evidence, you know, making the evidence available. We were also there very early in, in, in going live with the science, experimenting with how do you go live? How do you communicate science in an authentic way that also doesn't lose the trust in science because we make mistakes along the way and in a transparent way. So yeah, in that way that, you know, uh, our teams and our science around the world, and it's a, you know, it's 150 plus science involved with my projects um, were uh, perhaps a little better prepared for this moment than than others. But, you know, the, the catch-up has been really quick. Which is reassuring. Here is uh, the UK's Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. Let's hear what he had to say earlier this week. Our economy is now likely to undergo a more permanent adjustment. We need to create new opportunities and allow the economy to move forward. And that means supporting people to be in viable jobs which provide genuine security. I suppose, Jim, that those sorts of statements are both an opportunity and also a curse for someone in your position because some things that you may have been anticipating training people for may not actually exist as viable jobs, in Rishi Sunak's words, but there may now be new opportunities, new things potentially, that people want training in which someone delivering online and an adult education is an opportunity there. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Chris. There are opportunities and, and threats. If you take a city like Cambridge, a, a knowledge economy-driven city, um, if we want to be serious about uh, science and technology, not only do we need to continue training PhD-level scientists, but we need to think about technician-level um, science support so I think there's going to be some very exciting opportunities in those areas in life science, in physical science, and looking at data analytics, looking at coding. So we're really excited about that. But but yes, I, I think um, there's going to be sort of Schumpeterian creative destruction that's being accelerated around COVID. And we're, we're seeing um, so-called white-collar jobs um, that... Um, would be recognized as as being um, exciting professional opportunities, maybe even only 10 or 15 years ago. 
um, technology is overtaking with algorithms and machine learning. So I think we've all got to look to the future in terms of the real skills, particularly the transferable skills um, that we can uh, deploy in creative and, and new ways. Um, so it's as an educationalist interested in life wide and lifelong learning, it is a really interesting time. But it but I understand it's it, it's a really scary time as well when I think the the norms of employment within an economy um, in the UK, for example, they're they're going to change very rapidly, and uh, we have to be ready to respond to that as universities and education and training providers. What's your view on this, Theo? As has just been said, it's going to be so interesting to see how uh, computers get better at doing the the menial things that we do, ranging from driving a car to assessing an uh, a, an x-ray to all kinds of things that <clears throat> we used to think were particularly skilled. And how are we going to train people to work around the changing changing world of work, particularly, unfortunately, when we face a global economic crisis brought on by by covid so we're, we're sort of on the one hand want to invest in education and, and skills training and on the other going to be more hot up to do so it's interesting that both you and and jim just before you brought up computers and coding because that also made headlines this week didn't it unfortunately Public Health England have admitted tonight that nearly 16,000 cases of coronavirus between the 25th of September and the 2nd of October were not included in daily figures for that period and not transferred to the contact tracing system. I think one word springs to mind, Jim. Whoops. That is a really interesting point. Um, I mean, if we are to believe what we've been told, this was about an Excel spreadsheet that hadn't been transferred into the main data repository. I mean, obviously, I don't know how it happened, but I, I, I would bring this back to skills and training. Uh, we need people who have digital skills um, and we need to be able to design systems that, that work properly. Um, so I think what, what has happened here would be my guess. We have a ragtag of different systems going on here. And what we need to bring to bear are um, really contemporary skills. Uh, to make sure these systems are built more quickly and more effectively going forward. But obviously, that's my interpretation. But yes, uh, uh, an absolute disaster, really, in terms of how this data was treated and and the consequences could be uh, very important indeed, sadly. And just very briefly, with your eye on your crystal ball, which I'm sure you have there in your office at the Institute of Continuing Education, what what do you foresee as, as where we will be from a university point of view, as, as the university sector in a year's time? Do you think that organisations like the one that you're running will be at the forefront and it's going to very much be online? Or do you think we'll solve this COVID problem and it'll be bums on seats back in lecture theatres? Are these changes here to stay? Ah, yes. Well, the crystal ball, every office, academic office in Cambridge has one. Um, yeah, I, I think this is going to change universities profoundly. I, I think there's been probably 20 or 30 years in the UK uh, and, and, and Western uh, economies where we've perhaps, I don't know, lost our way a little bit. I think we've got to redefine what universities are for. Some universities, of course, are incredibly research-led, uh, and that's important, and we need to train the next generation of researchers. But we also need not to be too proud and not to have too much of an ego drive in in terms of we need to train the next generation of technicians, as I've mentioned, um, and really thinking about the fourth industrial revolution, 
what new jobs, what new roles will be created? I forget what percentage they say, but you know, perhaps half of the of the jobs that will be around in 10 years don't currently exist right now. So what we have to think about in universities is really getting students to think about critical thinking and synthesis of ideas and creativity and working with new ideas in different ways. And I think that that means we perhaps have to get out of discipline silos uh, and think across disciplines, interdisciplinary uh, learning. Um, so, so I hope universities will view this as a real opportunity. I, I genuinely think it is, but I think we've got to start to think about learning as a life-wide activity. The skills that we learn at university, if you're 18 or 19, the half-life of those skills now might be three or four years. So you're going to have to learn again in your mid-20s, your early 30s, your 40s. You might have to change career in your 50s or 60s. And we might have to carry on working until we're 70, 75 or 80. So I think we've got to recondition our learning and, that, and the way that we think about learning to respond to how society and technology is changing. That's a wonderful crystal ball you have there. It works very well. That's Jim Gazard, the director of ICE at the University of Cambridge.